Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Rather than looking at cities from a design perspective, Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation informs our built environment. This series is about housing affordability, and in each episode, I speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing. Think of Hidden Cities as a kind of idiot's guide to housing affordability, where I, an idiot in this field, speak with experts to make these often complex policies understandable. This episode is about negative gearing, and actually is the reason I made Hidden Cities in the first place. In the lead up to the 2019 election, there was a lot of conflicting information about what changes to negative gearing would mean for the economy and housing affordability. Real estate agents in Queensland sent letters to tenants in their rentals warning that removing negative gearing could see the killing of the goose that has laid a million golden eggs for a million ordinary Australians. Awkward metaphors aside, negative gearing reform was splashed on the front pages of the paper, alternatively promising a fix to housing affordability or the fall of the economy. The more I spoke with friends about it, the more I realised that none of us actually knew what it was, how it worked, or what changes to these tax settings would really mean. The Grattan Institute released a report called Hot Property, Negative Gearing and Capital Gains Tax. And I spoke with one of the co-authors, Danielle Wood, in February 2020. Danielle is an economist and expert in economic reform, budget policy, tax reform, and generational inequality. And since this interview, Danielle was made the CEO of the Grattan Institute. She begins by, convincingly, talking about how exciting tax can be. So I'm an economist by training, and you know, very early on in economics, it sort of struck me that you could have could make a real difference in the policy world. So economics is really the language of policymakers in a lot of areas. Um, it's sort of a standard framework people use. So I thought, you know, this is a great way to have an impact in the world. So I've, I've mainly worked in government. So I started at the Productivity Commission, which is the federal government's independent economic advisory agency. I worked at the ACCC, the competition regulator, so looking at the impact of um, different um, company behaviours on markets and at also sort of the place where economics and law meet, so going to litigation on you know, firms that have formed a cartel or misused their market power to try and get better outcomes in the market for consumers. I worked in consulting for a period um, and after that I sort of had a hankering to get back to broader policy questions, which is why... I moved to Grattan at that time and have had a lot of fun for the last six years, you know, trying to fight big policy battles. <laughs> That's great. It's nice to hear someone talk about tax and policy with a real smile on their face. I feel like it can be maybe viewed as something that ruins a dinner party, but it seems like something that sparks great joy. <laughs> Certainly doesn't ruin a dinner party for me. You can welcome to come to my house for dinner and talk tax anytime. I mean, it is so important. I mean, it just when I started working on this, just the sheer numbers, you know, all of a sudden we're talking billions not millions, um, it impacts all of us. It touches us in every aspect of every aspect of our lives. We're touching the tax system. So, you know, how taxes are collected, what's taxed and what isn't, um, makes a big difference to our well-being and to the health of the economy. So it's a really important topic. And so this report, the Hot Property Report, how did that come about? Uh, so it came about we were basically... There was some issues with the budget and we could see that we, we certainly formed the view that the government was going to have to be able to raise more raise more money as well as um, perhaps reducing spending in some areas to bring the budget back to balance. So we're trying to look for opportunities 
in order to raise more tax revenue that was not going to harm the economy significantly. So looking at um, tax concessions, for example, that weren't serving a good policy purpose that you could wind back in order to boost the bottom line. And so one of these tax concessions that could be wound back was negative gearing. But my big question is, what actually is negative gearing? Uh, It's a great question. It's one of those terms that everyone has heard, but not everyone understands. Um, So essentially, it is the fact that if you have an investment that makes a loss, you can write that loss off against your income for the purposes of calculating your tax. Um, So negative gearing almost always refers to property investment because you don't get um, heavily geared um, investments in most other sectors. Uh, So if you have an investment property and the income coming in from that property um, is not sufficient to cover the costs. So the costs will be things like uh, insurance, land tax, agent fees, and the interest costs on the loan that you've taken to buy that property. Um, Then you're making a loss, at least in the short term, that comes off your taxable income for the purposes of working out how much tax you pay. So it cuts your tax bill in the short term. Obviously, it's not a good investment if you're making a loss, but a lot of people do that in the anticipation that they will make money down the track through capital gains on that property. And capital gains are only taxed at um, half your normal rate, so you only pay tax on 50% of a capital gain. Um, And what that means is, particularly for high income earners, if you take on a property where even if the rental yield is quite low, but you've got high expectations of capital growth, it can be quite a good tax minimisation strategy. So you end up paying less tax on your total income than you would, for example, if you went out and earned that income through working. And just to be clear, capital gains tax is the tax you pay on a capital gain. Selling assets such as real estate, shares or managed funds investments is the most common way to make a capital gain. Um, So negative gearing is really just about your income and the the amount that you're paying um, in any given year. Capital gains tax is specifically about the amount of tax that you pay on a capital gain for an investment. So when you sell an investment, you make a gain or a loss, hopefully a gain if you've invested well, um, and you get taxed on that gain as income, but only at half the normal rate. Um, So negative gearing is kind of about the ongoing position of the property. Capital gain is about when you sell it at the end. That is the first time that I've properly understood that. And so when was negative gearing introduced in Australia? So negative gearing was never actually introduced in the sense that it's always been potentially there in the tax system. So it's actually a standard part of a tax system, this idea that you can write off losses against your income. Um, So that's just a standard principle that underpins almost all tax systems. So it never had to be introduced. Um, But we do stand out internationally in that most countries have wound it back in some way. So they've said, okay, you've got um, these income losses or investment losses. Does it make sense that you can write those losses off against the income that you make from working? Um, And most countries have concluded, no, you can't do that. Um, So you might be able to still write those losses off against investment income or maybe property rental income. So they quarantine what you can write it off against. Australia is very unique. I think it's only us and New Zealand that allow us to write off investment losses against any type of income, including wage and salary. Special case. (laughs) Indeed. Um, But... Where we have changed tax over time is in terms of capital gains. Mm -hmm. Um, So capital gains prior to 1986 were tax-free. So, you know, you would be 
you could make as much money as you want selling a property and you have zero tax. Uh, it then moved to tax on inflation-adjusted gains. Uh, and, nine, and in 1999, that was changed. So they got rid of adjustment for inflation, but they introduced the 50% discount. And really, we can see in the data that that's when negative gearing took off as a strategy. So it became more attractive to use this as a way of investing property at that point in time. And we've seen a really large growth in the number of people negative gearing since that time. And how does that um, shift in the capital gains tax policy relate to other OECD countries? Well, it's interesting. So it's very hard to compare capital gains tax regimes. And we went through the process of doing so. Um, so some countries actually still have no tax on capital gains. Um, we probably look more middle of the pack in terms of our tax arrangements for capital gains. Uh, a lot of countries do have some sort of discount to reflect the fact that um, otherwise inflation would eat away at those gains. Um, but a lot of countries require you to hold the asset for much longer before you get that discount. Whereas in Australia, you get that discount as long as you've held the asset for a year or more. And do you have any statistics about what percentage of the Australian population access negative gearing? Uh, so the last year of tax statistics that we have, which is 2016-17, was about 1.8 million people were negative gearing, which is about 10% of taxpayers. Um, so it's certainly nowhere near the majority, but it is a significant chunk of the the tax paying system that are that are using this strategy. And is everyone eligible for? Um, so anyone that has an investment property, and that's obviously a, you know a narrow group of people that can afford an investment property, um, but anyone that has an investment property that's making a rental loss can use it. Um, what we see is that. It tends to be used more often by people with high incomes. They get a better um, tax benefit from doing so because it comes off their marginal tax rate. Um, so, for example, if, if we broke it down by profession, we often, in the debate, we heard a lot about teachers and nurses that mm -hmm. were negatively gearing. Um, about 10% of those occupations negative gear. Whereas if we looked at surgeons, anaesthetists, um, people in the finance sector, it's more like 30% of people in those occupations that are negatively gearing. So it's certainly more attractive for, for some groups to negatively gear than others. And do you have any statistics about people, how much they financially benefit from this? Um, so the average rental loss is about $6,500. So if you're on the top marginal tax rate, that's going to be about $3,000 off your tax bill. Uh, but again, it, it varies widely. Um, so if we do a split by occupation, which is a nice way to look at it, you know, your average teacher or nurse is probably benefiting from the tune of $300 to $600 a year. Um, surgeon and anaesthetist, again, it might be more like $20,000, $30,000 a year. Um, so there's quite a big distribution in how how big the benefit is in terms of your tax according to how big the losses are on your property and how much tax you would otherwise pay. So there's no cap on how much you can... No, there is no cap. And that's one of the debates is whether um, whether you should get rid of it completely, whether you should wind it back or whether you should cap it in some way. But at the moment, it's a free-for-all uh, and some people do use it quite aggressively. And how much does this cost the Australian government? Um, so it costs probably, if you compared it to a world where you had no discount on capital gains and um, no negative gearing, it's probably about $12 billion a year. 
most people don't suggest that you would totally abolish those tax concessions. So certainly the, the model that we were proposing was more that you wind back negative gearing and say that you can't write losses off against your wage income um, and reduce the capital gains tax discount to 25% rather than 50%. Um, and then you're talking more in the realm of about $6 billion a year benefit to the budget. Um, and you know that is money that the government can use to do other things with. So they could cut personal income taxes, um, they could boost the rate of new start. Um, you know, so there's all sorts of competing claims on government budgets. Um, and we think that the current tax concessions aren't serving a good policy purpose. So there's much better use of that money. Uh, in the lead up to the last federal election, there was a lot of discussion about what it would mean to either remove or wind back negative gearing. Um, what did your research find that the impact of removing negative gearing would yeah, so this is one where I think um, both sides of the debate massively overstated their arguments. Um, so first of all, there was a big debate about the impact on house prices and um, Labor and Nathan Lishley was sort of talking about this as a bit of a silver bullet for housing affordability. Uh, it is not that. So it will help shift the balance in the market between investors and first home buyers because you're taking away some tax concessions from investors um, some of them will not participate in the market at all and that will make it easier for first home buyers to get in. But you know you don't want to overstate how big that is and we estimated that the overall price effects are probably in the range of 1-2%. to 2%. Mm -hmm. um, and Remember we're talking about a market that's grown about 7% a year for the past 15 years. Um, so it's relatively small in the scheme of the whole debate about housing affordability. And is that because the value of property is so much that if you can afford to buy multiple houses, the rebate you're getting from negative gearing isn't. It makes a difference, but you're still going to be making a considerable profit. Yeah, it's sort of so. The way we thought about it is, you know, what's the value of this tax concession, and how does it compare to the total value of housing markets? So, if you take off this concession every year for infinity, um, and you, if that came off the price of houses on day one you're talking about 1% to 2%. Um, and it's difficult to make an argument that it would impact the market more than that. It might in particular segments of the market which are more investment heavy. Um, the other stream of the argument was what's the impact on the economy? Um, and again, if you look at the size of these tax concessions that you're taking out, any impact on the overall economy was going to be really small. And there was just a huge number of, um, frankly, quite dodgy consulting reports that were put out into the public domain um, almost always commissioned by financial advisors or the property industry that were claiming economic hits that were so far out of whack with the actual size of the tax concessions that are being wound back that they just didn't make any sense. Um, that didn't stop them appearing on the front page of newspapers or being quoted in Parliament um, and really getting picked up in the debate. And I think that really muddied the waters in terms of people's understanding of just how significant this change was. And why do you think that negative gearing is such a political hot potato in Australia? It's interesting. I mean, I think it's partly because of our obsession with property and it's sort of tied up with views of aspiration and building wealth. Um, and, you know, all of those are, are great aims to have, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people should be entitled to significant tax concessions in order to, you know, save for their family. So I think that's part of it. Um, we also have a property industry that is, um, you know, has some skin in the game. And so they're pretty um, voracious opponents of any change. And certainly we saw around the labour cha uh, changes, um, there was a big 
um, camp advertising campaign run by the property industry, um, sort of um, <laughs> labelling the industry a house of cards. I don't remember if it was sort of like houses made out of card and it was all falling over. And I just thought it was quite a strange approach. I mean, I'm not a marketing expert, but positioning your industry as a house of cards doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, they were trying to make the argument that it, the industry was vulnerable to this kind of tax change. Um, so I think there is a lot of um, interest groups out there that will try and muddy the water and, and, and claim that these sort of changes will be catastrophic. Uh, it's simply not true. And, you know, really interesting to me, um, after each federal election, there's something done called the Australian Election Study, which takes the mood of the nation and um, surveys a whole lot of voters about what mattered to them in the election. And they asked specifically this time around about some of the tax proposals that were on the table, including the changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax. And 57% of people said they supported the changes. Um, so I don't think this is anywhere near as unpopular as you might believe if you were just reading the press every day because the, the squeaky wheels get a whole lot more attention than um, most Australians that actually feel comfortable with the change. And if it's approximately 10% of people that access negative gearing, um, that seems like it shouldn't have an enormous but do you have um, any demographic data about where those people are positioned? Is it mostly rural or regional or city centres? Um, so they will tend to be in cities. Um, they'll tend to be higher income earners than average. Um, they tend to be slightly older, um, although you're probably talking more Gen X rather than boomers because there's not much advantage to negative gearing once you're retired because essentially you're unlikely to be paying tax. <laughs> so you're not getting the tax benefits. So it will tend to be people, um, you know, 40s, 50s, early 60s um, is the sort of the, the average user of negative gearing. And um, could you talk through the difference between what it would mean to grandfather the cause in contrast to getting rid of it or what the different levels of stepping it back could be. Sure. So, um, you know, politicians love grandfathering because what it does is take out a group that would otherwise be opposed. So people that are currently negative gearing don't like the idea of losing it, or some don't. Um, and so if you say it's grandfather, then obviously you're only affecting people who are buying properties from here on in. Um, so normally I'm very against grandfathering in principle. Um, one, I think there's... Um, equity arguments. So essentially you're asking people that haven't had the benefit of that particular concession to keep paying for people that are using it currently and without giving them the opportunity to access the same concession into the future. Uh, also, it just adds a whole lot of complexity in the tax system. So when the capital gains tax changes uh, were put into place um, in 1986 and we introduced it, we grandfathered everything that was owned before 1986. And even today, um, when people are doing tax, they have to identify whether it was a pre-1986 asset or a post, you know, it's just, it's a nightmare. So normally I think grandfathering is terrible. Um, for negative gearing, I'm actually a little bit more sanguine about it. And the reason is, is that properties don't stay negatively geared for a terribly long period of time. Um, so if you have a property um, and you're sort of slowly paying it back, you actually move at some point from being negatively geared 
to being positively geared. So your income costs are coming down. Um, so at some point, normally within five to seven years, you're going to be making positive return on that. Um, so grandfathering will sort of wash its way through the system. Um, you know, within 10 years, almost all the properties that were covered by the grandfathering will probably be positively geared and it doesn't matter anyway. So, um, you know, I can see the political advantages of it and I don't think the costs are so high here as they might normally be. As well as grandfathering, what other kind of conditional steps could be taken rather than overnight getting rid of it um so there's i mean there's a whole lot of different things you can do so we certainly support you know you could phase it in um so this idea that rather than losing uh, the ability to write off losses overnight you know you move down to you can write off 80 percent then 60 percent then 40 percent so you can sort of phase it in over five years say which would um reduce the impact on the housing market um, and also give people time to get used to the idea um other options that people put forward which is sort of halfway house options, is you could cap the amount that you're able to deduct. So you can only write off $3,000 a year, say, but no more than that. Or you could cap the number of properties. So you can write off losses on one investment property, but not two or three or four or five. Um, you know, I don't like those solutions as much because they tend to create distortions of their own. Um, so, for example, in the number of properties one, you know, why is it that you should be able to write off losses on a $1 million property, but not to $500,000 properties? Um, so I think there's flaws in those. Um, that said, you know, some of those halfway houses may well be better than what we have now. Um, and there's a small mention in the report of uh, intergenerational wealth transfer and intergenerational inequality um, what relationship does negative gearing have to that well I think it it comes through the impact on the, the property market um, so a big change in recent decades has been you know, much more investor activity in the market um, and partly that's been about these tax concessions partly it's been about other things like lower interest rates that's increased demand um, and what we've seen is as houses and you know house prices and incomes have diverged, which they really have over about the past 30 years, uh, it's become harder and harder for young people that want to buy a house to live in to get into the market. So we're starting to think of houses as this sort of financial investment vehicle rather than a shelter. And you can really see it in the figures around home ownership for young people. It's you know, fallen substantially over the past 30 years. And what we've found is it's fallen most significantly amongst the young and the poor. Um, so if you're in the top 20% of income earners for 24 to 35 year olds, you're actually almost as likely to own your own home as that group was 30 years ago. If you're in the bottom 20% of income earners, home ownership rates have fallen from about 60% to 20%. Um, so this is really impacting um, lower income young people. And the fact is that those people probably just won't get into the market. Um, this is not about preferences. Um, we know that most young people still want to own a home. This is not about avocado on toast. Um, you know, I've done the numbers on spending. Uh, and what we see is young people are spending more on essential goods and less on discretionary goods than young people were 20 years ago at the same age. Um, so, you know, those arguments are fallacies. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a real fundamental shift in the Australian mindset to say there's just a big segment of the population for whom, you know, owning a home will be out of reach.
And so that's, uh, that's to me, how this plays in. As I said, it's only a small part of the issue. There's a lot of broader questions that feed into those intergenerational inequality questions, um, but they are very real um, and you can talk to, you know, any under 30 and they will, they will tell you about them. <laughs> so unfortunately, it seems like rolling back negative gearing won't miraculously affordability. But does the Grattan Institute have any strategies for what might? Um, so there's, I mean, there's many things. The most important single thing is boosting housing supply. Um, so we have seen an increase in demand as we've had very strong population growth, um, low interest rates has induced a lot of people to want to come in and invest in the market, um, fueled by tax concessions. Um, and, you know, supply just hasn't kept pace. So um, changing planning rules to allow greater density in particularly middle ring suburbs. We know that we've actually got quite high density in the inner city areas, but sort of medium density development in the inner ring so that you are adding more houses within kind of 10 k's of the city rather than adding houses on the city fringes um, would make a huge difference to the problem. And I think, you know, this has been a really hard argument um, because the you know, the, the people that push back are the people, sort of the NIMBY, you know, nobody wants to change in their area. But actually increasingly, um, as those homeowners have seen that their children will struggle to buy anywhere near them, as in, you know, within an hour's drive of them, um, I do think positions are softening somewhat. And older people as well would, you know, often they want to downsize, but they want to stay in the area where they've lived their whole lives, which is totally understandable. And the lack of, you know, suitable medium density development to allow them to do that is is a big issue. So, you know, I'm hoping, and I think we have seen some change on this front, but I think it needs to go a lot further. You know, there's parts of Melbourne that are essentially locked up from this type of development, and I don't think that is a good outcome at all. So rezoning for the granny flat out the back? Yep, granny flat out the back, um, you know, medium density all along transport corridors. Um, you know, there's a lot of urban planning people that have done more thinking about this than I have, but um, it just needs to be a whole lot easier to build more supply in those suburbs. And I guess on a uh, political and public will level, what do you think we'd need to change for negative gearing to be able to change? I think there has actually been a pretty big shift. Um, so this was, you know, after Labor tried to wind it back in the 80s um, and had to go back on that for, for various reasons. Um, and it was seen as untouchable, basically, for, for you know, the best part of you know, two decades. Um, you know, the fact that we've had one of our two major political parties go to the last election with this in their platform, the fact that we know that the other side was at least contemplating some changes in this area, and it's certainly been said by the you know, former treasurer that they were looking at this um, and they probably didn't go down the path because Labor put out a policy first. But so both sides of politics have seen this now as touchable. Um, the fact that, as I said, I think it's actually has support with the majority of the population. Um, you know, I think we could well see change. Um, it, it will depend on all sorts of dynamics in the political system, but I think it's actually possible now. Um, and, you know, the more people, I think, that, you know, try and understand it and, and see that the sky's not going to fall in, um, the more it means that a, a political party will push forward with these changes. Danielle's point about increasing housing supply is one that we'll continue to interrogate over the coming episodes. 
If you're interested in the Hot Property Report, you can download it from the Grattan Institute's website. For a slightly different take, you can also read Cameron Murray's article called Game of Homes on the Conversation website from 2016.